The University of Pennsylvania Law School is honored to welcome Anand Grover, one of the world's most foremost health rights advocates, scholars, and practitioners, who's one of in India's preeminent lawyers who's worked on several decades of human rights change in India and around the world. The world is facing an unprecedented crisis and Anand Grover is in the forefront of addressing some of these urgent and pressing human rights violations. So at this moment in time, when we are at the cusp of enormous change, we are delighted to engage in conversation with Anand Grover, who's called in from India to speak to us about some of the human rights issues that are and should be at the forefront of addressing COVID-19. So Anand, can you begin with talking a little bit about the situation in India and how that impacts the rest of the world? Well, uh, Rangita, in terms of the COVID situation in India, as you know, we have been on a, in a lockdown and that lockdown has been in force from 24th of March, 2020 and been extended uh, twice and will go on till the next Monday. Uh, we were in a complete lockdown. Now there are some easing of restrictions, but there are a number of things that have come up which are uh, familiar to uh, people even in the United States in terms of a lockdown. The major issue is how to treat uh, persons who are affected by COVID. As you know, there is no treatment, there is no vaccine. So there is a major problem of how to treat people. Fortunately, a large number, about 80% are asymptomatic, don't require too much uh, intervention. 15% require mild intervention, but 5% um, require, uh, may not survive. And we have seen that um, in different countries, different scenarios have actually opened out and United States is very, very badly affected. Compared to the United States, we are really relatively well off for whatever reasons. Uh, we cannot actually understand why uh, the reason is in South Asia, Southeast Asia, it is no, not so grave as it is in the US or in Europe. Uh, of course, the lockdown has helped, but the lockdown itself has had a number of uh, issues uh, which are very, very important to understand. First of all, only essential services were allowed. Uh, you had to stay at home. You had to observe quarantine practically if you were ill and you could not go out without a mask. Um, they have, in order to uh, uh, control the epidemic, also instituted regulations. Um, I'm not going into the technicalities of it, but with that, they've used invasive technology uh, for example, uh, smartphone applications uh, to detect, to uh, monitor, to contact trace, which actually raises a lot of legal issues. Uh, and in our country, we had a very famous case, the privacy case of Putwaswami, which actually followed in terms of uh, the proportionality doctrine, uh, the European uh, courts prescriptions in a sense. So if you have restrictions like when you have restrictions in whatsoever manner, they have to be sanctioned by law. They have to be pursued, pursued to a legitimate aim. 
there has to be proportionality between the restrictions and the object uh, sought to be achieved. And finally, you must actually uh, always resort to the least restrictive, restrictive alternative. And that is a question mark as far as uh, the applications which are being used here. There is a, a debate going on about whether the government application Arogya Setu, uh, is, uh, the, the meaning of that is a health bridge is actually uh, conforming to those constitutional standards. Uh, but whether it is challenged or not, it's a different issue. In terms of other issues, the right to health. As you know, uh, India is the uh, signatory and actually follows the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights. So under that, uh, you know, the uh, goods, facilities and services have to be made available on, in, on a non-discriminatory basis. Uh, they have to be available, accessible and acceptable and of good quality. Availability actually is to the number. They have to be adequate. If 10 uh, doses of uh, or units of medicines are required for 10 people, 10 should be available. They have to be accessible physically and geographically and economically. And if they are acceptable, that means that they have to be respectful of culture. Um, access to medicines is very big part of that. And that is an issue which is going to be, uh, which is going to be a problem in the future in terms of COVID. As you know, um, there are no medicines. Some medicines have actually been uh, clinically uh, tried, there are clinical trials going on on those uh, medicines. And there are actually uh, four group of medicines which uh, would be patented or maybe patented in a different form. Um, most countries have patents, India actually uh, kicked, uh, kicked in the TRIPS agreement compliance in 2005. So we have a product patent and a process patent regime. Most countries have that now. And in terms of the type of drugs that will be uh, tried uh, in the next period, there are four sets of drugs. Uh, one is the new drug, which is remdesivir, which was actually tried for Ebola. And that is uh, sort of be patented by Gilead. It has actually received public funding in the United States, approximately $70 million. And should it be patented, uh, should there be open access? That's a major dispute, which is actually going on uh, uh, amongst civil society, uh, between civil society and Gilead. Um, so that's one uh, issue. Lopinavir, Retonavir is the other set of drugs. Uh, and the third drug is Lopinavir, Retonavir with another third set of drugs, um, which are rather a third drug. Uh, so these two are actually old HIV drugs. Uh, they are patented in some countries, not patented in the others, but a new use can be patented. And finally, there is the drug which Donald Trump, your president talked about hydroxychloroquine, which drug in fact um, uh, is an anti-malarial drug. There's no pattern, but a new use pattern can be uh, sought on it and some countries allow it, not in India. So there are four sets of drugs. Uh, the most important one actually is remdesivir because it's a new drug or not a new drug, it's repurposed. It was used in Ebola. Um, the US has issued uh, emergency authorization. So they, they, that can be prescribed by a doctor. But as I said, uh, clinical trials are going on to see its efficacy and safety and $70 million approximately have been pumped in by public funding. 
So why should it be patented and why should they be not open access? In terms of uh, vaccines, there are about seven candidates. 82 candidates are for pre, uh, seven candidates of clinical trial and 82 candidates are for preclinical trials. The estimated time for them uh, to be tested clinically, uh, clinical trial-wise is about six months to one year. So we won't have that for a long time. In India, we have other problems. The problems are about uh, tests, diagnostics. They cost about uh, uh, 4,500 rupees, which is about $5 per test. And that is quite expensive in terms of uh, the Indian market. The other issue, issue is about uh, personal protection equipment for healthcare workers. As you know, without that, uh, healthcare workers can themselves get infected. And that is not made available by government. Uh, we had approached the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court actually directed that PPE, as it is known in an acronym form, should be available. But uh, the court has not monitored it until today. Governments are not supplying PPE to a lot of the healthcare workers. And in fact, NGOs have stepped in to fill in the vacuum, which is a good thing. But I think the uh, issue is about government uh, uh, putting in the uh, equipment. Then there are issues about private hospitals. Uh, in India, uh, the right to health is applicable to the public sector alone, uh, to the state sector, but not the private sector. We need a law. And I think that issue is also coming up in the US, whether your healthcare uh, system is actually catering to the needs of the COVID patients, the COVID healthcare workers, and do you not need uh, the healthcare system to be expanded where actually everybody can get healthcare and whether private care is actually not performing its, uh, its duty. So I'll stop here. That is a very brief synopsis of um, what I feel on the issue and the issues that have come up in India and which need to be addressed. So if there are questions, I can answer them because we still have about, uh, I think, three, four minutes. Of course. So thank you. Thank you, Ananda, for that wonderful exegesis. What I wanted to highlight was that during Black Swan events such as COVID-19, what we see is that the fault lines on human rights become even deeper. And we see a rollback of prior gains on human rights. And so how do we avoid that danger of rolling back on some of the, high, on some of the prior gains, such as civil rights and economic and social rights, but also how existing inequalities, existing fault lines that become even more pronounced can be addressed through a human rights-based approach. So the Secretary General has said that when we are building back, that we had to build back stronger with women's rights uh, front and center. He has also said very effectively that, um, that we have to create disability inclusive rec recovery. So you have worked at the intersections on women's rights, disability rights, health rights, and LGBTQ rights. So how do we use this moment of change, of mass transition, mass scale uh, transformation to build back a stronger human rights framework when the human rights framework is threatened by all of these global forces? So that's one question. The second question is, 
you're also, apart from your eminent and distinguished work uh, at the forefront of human rights in India, you're also on the Global Commission on Drug Policy. So how do you see this uh, crisis impacting drug policies globally? Uh, thank you, Rangita. Because of the paucity of time, I could not address those issues. But you are absolutely right. Uh, I would say that uh, the COVID pandemic has actually exposed inequalities that are inherent in societies. Um, I think Bill Gates and others actually said that the virus doesn't recognize differences and inequalities. Unfortunately, he's partly right and partly wrong. The virus doesn't actually recognize any difference. It actually infects a rich and a poor person in the same manner. But the persons who are already at a disadvantage or who are marginalized because of various reasons, they are actually exposed to the virus much more and disproportionately. So the inequalities are exposed. Let me give you a concrete example as far as India is concerned. Um, the poor people were affected very badly in India uh, for the reason that the lockout meant in terms of the actual measures to combat uh, the epidemic first and then actually the COVID epidemic also. Now, on two fronts, because poor people were sacked on 24th of March, they were rendered jobless, they did not have a place to stay and you had millions, literally millions of workers who are migrants from other parts of India actually returning to their home states on foot because this had not been envisaged by the government. So they were without food, without secure, without money. And because of that, if they were actually affected by COVID, they would be more debilitated because of poverty and malnutrition. Similarly, uh, people who are old because of comorbidities, they are more affected. That is all over the world. Um, so the right to health framework is actually quite strong. The fact is that it is not being implemented. So when we come back after COVID or during COVID, we have to reassert that framework and make sure that it is implemented. So inequalities are being exposed. We have to actually make sure, advocate that they are not allowed to get away with it. Because in developing countries, inequalities are very pronounced. In our country, they are pronounced on account of economics, on account of caste, on account of sex, religion, and all sorts of other factors. To the other question, uh, in terms of drug use, drug users are also disproportionately affected because of various debilities they have. But fortunately, because of HIV, uh, we have a very strong civil society of those who are disproportionately affected. Those who are known as the key populations who actually were the people who were affected in the HIV scenario, but who actually mounted a response. And it is their groups which actually were very key in making sure that HIV doesn't spread. For example, sex workers making sure condoms are actually utilized. So those groups, key populations, sex workers, drug users or injecting drug users and other marginalized populations like LGBTQI, they are the populations who are very strong on the ground. They are responsible to make sure not only that their needs are catered for, for example, 
antiretroviral treatment must be made available to them. So they were able to advocate with the National AIDS Control Organization. And rather than getting them on a daily or a weekly basis, they were able to get them on a monthly basis. Uh, similarly, sex workers could get food. Food was organized for them because they had no work. They would have starved. Not only that, sex workers have shown an exemplary behavior and conduct by making sure that other poor people are fed with food. And finally, on women, in fact, the, the, the brunt of the response to the epidemic, apart from the fact that they are otherwise poor and malnourished and in the home they are disadvantaged, uh, the women in the epidemic have been subject to more domestic violence during the pandemic and also because their menfolk have gone out to work in the metro cities, they are alone at home and they are also out of work. But there is no system, though we have a very strong system of public distribution and now uh, online systems of transferring money and giving food, a lot of them, especially women, are not part of the network. So they have not been able to get food or money which the government has given. So women are at a major disadvantage, uh, which also needs to be taken care of. Basically, whatever we have seen in the past is now magnified in the pandemic in terms of inequalities uh, of marginalized or historically oppressed groups. So absolutely, those, those things have to be now worked upon even with more vigor and advocating that we come out of it with a better future for all of us. Absolutely. And apart from the fact that women are disproportionately impacted, women and other minority groups are disproportionately impacted by COVID-19, women are also disproportionately in the front lines of fighting COVID-19 as healthcare workers and as caregivers. So apart from the fact that they are uh, being further victimized by COVID, we also also have to understand the fact that they are the ones who are in the trenches fighting COVID-19. So they need to be empowered. Their voices have to be um, amplified. And we need to ensure that women's leadership in terms of decision making on post, in a post-COVID-19 world is, as you said, magnified, exemplified, and, uh, uh, and, and, and amplified in all possible ways. So thank you for reminding the world about the importance of women's voices. But we also need to understand that women are not only uh, disproportionately affected as victims, but they are disproportionately in the front lines as leaders in this, uh, in this challenging circumstance. So I also wanted to spend a moment asking you, just from a human rights framework point of view, you know, uh, although health rights and the right to assembly, the right to protest, uh, the right of association are considered non-derogable rights, there are certain instances under the ICCPR in Articles uh, 27 and 28 where that derogation is allowed in, in times of public emergency and in times of a health crisis. So I think we are at that moment right now when due to a health crisis, these rights to freedom of assembly 
and association are being constricted and being limited. But as you said, we have to use the yardstick of proportionality in considering them. And I think what we see here is this balance of rights, right? And the balance in terms, especially in India, when, um, when slum dwellers really have no access to water, access to food, it is difficult to be in a lockdown situation. And more people will die of hunger and malnutrition than even of COVID. So I think this difficulty in balancing rights come to play in a time of unprecedented challenge. So can you talk a little bit about yes, that kind yes. of dynamic uh, well, and uh, complexity? Um, though civil and political rights and even other rights are not derogable, for example, the right to health, the minimum core obligations are not derogable. The right to access uh, and have medicines available is not derogable especially essential medicines. So they have to be made available. They are part of the core obligations. But all these rights have to be balanced when restrictions are imposed with other obligations. Because take, for example, in a lockdown, your right to free movement is obviously restricted. So you have to decide whether that is necessary for controlling the epidemic. And then it has to be sanctioned by law. It has to be, there has to be a law to sanction it. So we have the Disaster Management Act and the Epidemic Diseases Act. Then it has to have a legitimate aim, which we have in our country. The legitimate aim is to curb the transmission. Then it has to be proportional. So can you say, like they have said, that all persons above 65 should not venture out? Well, some 65-year-old like me are quite active. So you can't have a blanket thing. So the, there has to be a relationship with the object and the restriction. That is the doctrine of proportionality. So you have to actually look at the proportionality angle and then decide whether they are actually derogable and to what extent. And it can't be permanent. It's only a very short period of time. And then finally, in the proportionality doctrine itself, the least restrictive alternative has to be resorted to by the state. Um, so that is, you know, this is an issue which is highly debatable and at a particular point of time, what the state does. But in terms of um, uh, testing, contact tracing, and, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, using uh, smartphone applications, uh, applications to uh, uh, actually monitor the COVID patients, there, there's a huge debate about whether these actually conform to uh, the, the criteria which is laid down all over the world now practically that there is a law uh, to sustain it, that it is a legitimate aim and that it actually con conforms to the proportionality doctrine. So in terms of those applications, there's a huge dispute as to whether it actually conform or not because data is available, whether that'll be used in future for other purposes is also an issue. Uh, whether the source code should be available or not is another issue. So all these issues are going to come up in courts over a period of time uh, as to the applications which are uh, online applications which are used to uh, control and monitor the transmission of a, of a virus in an emergency.
So, Anand, this has been such an edifying conversation. As you so eloquently stated, the pandemic is intensifying inequalities, but also producing the threat of new challenges. And I think produ the producing of new threats need to be addressed. So, as you said, how do we build back stronger, a more equal world that has as front and center the protection of human rights? and the human rights of all. And in that pursuit, we are so um, proud to have you lead that charge of new building a new world, a new world in which human rights are not only really non-derogable, but inextricably interlinked, universal, and, and uh, indivisible. So thank you. Thank you, Anand, for this wonderful conversation. And we wish you all the best as you continue being at the forefront of these human rights challenges. Thank you. Thank and you I look forward much. to seeing you, you again. Thank you very much.